this is your first Sunday with us, I'm so glad you're here. Uh, we're actually starting uh, a new series in Advent season. What, what is Advent? Uh, it marks uh, for the church uh, about four weeks going into Christmas to really kind of prepare our hearts and our minds for the worship of our Lord Jesus Christ. I know that for many of us, uh, Christmas is a busy, busy season. It's full of kind of parties, gatherings, and events. Uh, we're thinking vacations, shopping, gifts, uh, and things like that. Uh, but I hope that during this season, we wouldn't lose sight of really the true meaning of Christmas uh, found in the miracle that God sent his only begotten son as the light of the world. And in light of this holy season, we're, uh, yeah, in a, in a short series, and the title is called Love Came Down, Love Came Down, uh, to set our hearts, minds, and lives on Jesus Christ, uh, the true savior of the world. If you have your Bibles, would you please turn with me to our passage, uh, Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. I know that you guys are probably expecting Matthew 1 or Luke 1, maybe John 1, uh, but what we actually see is that the incarnation, the fact that God has dwelt among us, that Jesus Christ, the Word of God, took on flesh, that's a biblical theme echoed throughout the scriptures. And so a lot of the series, we're actually not going to be doing the traditional gospel infancy narrative passages. We're going to see a lot of different places where Jesus Christ, the Word of God, the second person in the Trinity, becomes man, and, and what that means for us, what that means for the world, what that means for the kingdom. And so may God bless the reading of his matchless and inerrant word. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Amen. The word of the Lord. Church, if I were to ask you, what is the highest, greatest privilege that Jesus offers us in our life? How would we respond? In other words, what is the greatest blessing that we can receive in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in our relationship to God? What's the greatest blessing? What's the, what's the highest privilege that we have? How would you answer that? I know it's odd to kind of talk in this way to like rank the blessings of God. We're like, they're, they're all blessings, you know? Uh, but I do believe there's value in making wise distinctions rather than kind of just vaguely lumping everything in these broad, squishy categories. I think there are times when we study the Bible to really be distinct and divide the word and the work of God, uh, particularly in our lives. And so I want to ask you that question. What is the greatest blessing, the highest privilege that we receive in Jesus Christ? Theologian J.I. Packer, in his classic book, Knowing God, he answers this question, and he effectively argues that it is the doctrine of adoption. The doctrine of adoption is the highest privilege for a Christian. And adoption simply means that that work of God in making us sons and daughters of God. We sing it all the time. We pray it. We thank God for making us his sons and daughters. We sing Good, Good Father, that awesome, popular Christian worship song. And what we are doing is we're celebrating God's work 
of adoption in our lives through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, this is surprising for a lot of us. We wouldn't think that just being able to call God Father or calling one another brothers and sisters or calling ourselves sons and daughters of God, that that would be the highest blessing, the highest privilege. A lot of us might think, no, 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 it's justification. And what is justification? It is the doctrine where we are declared innocent of our sins and accepted by God because of Jesus' death on the cross for us. Justification is the heart of the gospel. It's absolutely essential for us to become Christians. J.I. Packer states that justification is the primary blessing of God because it meets our greatest need, okay? It meets our greatest need. Our, Our greatest problem is not we don't have enough money. Our greatest problem is not illness and sickness or fires in our community. Our greatest problem is sin, right? Our greatest problem is sin that has separated us from a relationship with God and and the work of Jesus to die on the cross in our place and justify us, that is our primary need. But Packer says, but adoption is higher because it doesn't just think of our standing with God in a legal sense. It offers us a richer relationship with God. It offers us intimacy with God. You see, the doctrine of justification declares we are forgiven before a holy God. But the doctrine of adoption It promises you and I that we are loved by God. Think about that, okay? It's one thing for a judge to declare that you're innocent and send you on your way. I was was, uh, serving jury duty this week, right? I was postponing as many times as possible, and then it was my week, and I I called in on Monday. I didn't have to report. Called in on Tuesday. I didn't have to report. I was like continuing to pray. Wednesday, I had to report. I went downtown. I was wondering if I'd see any lawyer friends who'd be able to get me out. Uh, It didn't happen. Um, And I get there, and and I just saw stressed people, right, uh, waiting to stand before the judge, whether it's family court or whatever di- different kinds of, everyone is just afraid. And I know in that context, everyone wants to just be declared innocent. They want to like, get off, be released. That's all they wanted. But I want to tell you guys this, that's not enough for you and I. For God to simply tell us you are forgiven and send you on your way and live the rest of your life, that is not enough for us to be able to enjoy and experience the Christian life. It's one thing for the judge to declare that you're innocent and send you on your way. It's another thing. It's an entirely other thing for the judge then to step down from his seat and embrace you and then tell you that he loves you and invite you into his family. How awkward would that be if that happened at the LA courthouse? He says, you're innocent. And I want to tell you, I love you. I want to hug you. I want to invite you to my family, right? I want to call you a son, and we'd be like, no, thank you, right? No, thank you, Judge Watson or whatever the judge's name might be. But that's what God does through the doctrine of adoption. Justification makes adoption possible, but adoption is the goal of God. God wants to bring you back into his family. God wants you to be a son, a daughter in his household, in his kingdom. Now, why am I bringing this up in our first Advent message? Why all this doctrine? I mean, Pastor Mike, you opened up with adoption, justification, and all of that stuff. Where's baby Jesus? Where's the three wise men? Where's peace on earth? Uh, We will eventually get there, especially if you join us for our Christmas morning service, 10 a.m. Main Sanctuary. Uh, But I believe that this topic, this message, is one of the most important things for us to reflect on and consider as we approach Christmas. You see, this message answers the question, Why did Jesus come to earth? 
Why did Jesus have to become a man? And one of the answers to this huge question is so that we could be adopted into his family. C.S. Lewis beautifully wrote in Mere Christianity, this quote's going to go up on the screen, the son of man became a man to enable men to become sons of God. Beloved church, that's the main idea for our message today. If it's the only thing that you remember, that will be enough, okay? And uh, C.S. Lewis was not writing to be chauvinistic and be exclusive of women. He was just talking about men in this, like, uh, the, this plural, uh, general sense, not excluding women. So if we want to read it more ex- uh, inclusively, it's the Son of God became a man to enable men and women to become sons and daughters of God. The rest of the message is unpacking this idea. I'll do so in our usual three-point fashion. And the first point is simply this. How did we lose our sonship? How we lost our sonship. Second, how God restores our our sonship. And lastly, how we can be assured of our sonship. So how we lost it, how God will restore it. And finally, how we can be assured that we actually have it. Now, if you know the story of the Lion King, okay, it's a classic plot, right, where an heir, a king's son, right, named Simba, he loses his throne, and he loses his inheritance, that pride land and pride rock. He loses all of it to his evil uncle, Scar, and it's about his journey of of returning to the kingdom, returning to rightfully reclaim his place as the ruler and inheritor of his father's kingdom. If you haven't seen it, I just spoiled it for you, uh, but you've had 25 years uh, to watch it. And so sorry, not sorry. But that's the story. Simba was an heir. He lost it all. And it's the journey of returning to regain it. And now that's not a perfect analogy for our passage, but it fits as a reminder that Paul gives us in verse one. He tells us that we are heirs of the kingdom of God, that we were heirs, we were created to be heirs in God's kingdom. But in Adam and Eve, we were all created in the image of God as his sons and daughters. We were created to have authority and dominion over the earth. We were created to reflect the rule of God in this world and enjoy all of the benefits that God had in store for us. But we lost this privilege. We lost our God-given identity as heirs and rulers in this world when we fell in the garden. And we all became enslaved to sin. Paul tells us in verse 3 that we were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. I don't have time to get too in-depth to what he means there. But to the Jews, it meant simply that the Jews were enslaved to the law of Moses. Last week, Pastor DC preached on the, the great commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law is summarized in that great commandment. And the Jews had forgotten that that was the heart of God. And instead, they were obsessed with trying to keep all the 613 laws of the Old Testament. They had become legalists. And Paul writes that Israel had become enslaved to this law. To the Gentiles, what did this mean? To be enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, it meant that they were enslaved to the false idols of the world, whether it was worshiping Baal or for the Greeks, it was Zeus, right? And, and that whole pantheon of Greek gods, that was their worship system, that whole form of idolatry that was enslaving the Roman world. And that's the state of man. That's the state of humanity. 
either caught up in religion and legalism or caught up in idolatry and worldliness. But here's the thing. God always had a plan to restore our identity as his sons and daughters. God always had a plan. He always knew that his people were created not to be idolaters, but they were created to be heirs, to receive his blessing, to experience his goodness. So he always had a plan to restore our inheritance. He always had a plan to undo undo the curse of the law and liberate us from the idols of this world, whether it was legalism, whether it was vain religion, whether it was the idols of Zeus or money or comfort or family, God always had a plan to liberate us. He always had a plan to redeem us. The question is this, how does he do this? How does he restore our sonship? How will he return to us the inheritance that we squandered away with our sin? The answer is found in verses four and five, and we're already moving into our second point. Let's read those verses again, verses four and five. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. We're gonna spend the bulk of our time here, and I'm gonna give you a heads up. I know this is point two, but there are three subpoints. And so that's for the note takers. The first sub point is simply this. Paul is telling us that the timing of God sending his son was according to God's perfect plan, okay? You see, according to ancient law, a father had the right to fix the time when his children would receive their inheritance. It could be based on the father's death. It could be based on the child's age or maybe any conditions that the father said. He said, you have to get married or you have to get a job or you have to X, Y, and Z. And the father could set any conditions that had to be fulfilled for his son, for his children to receive their inheritance. We actually see something very similar in our culture today with wills and trusts, right? Testaments. Uh, Bill Gates, you guys know who Bill Gates is. He's the billionaire founder of Microsoft. He has publicly declared that he's only giving his three children, he has three children, and he's only giving them $10 million each for their inheritance. And I know for us, we're like, $10 million, that's a crazy amount of money, right? I mean, I would love that, right? (laughs) Adopt me, right? (laughs) But when your father is worth $96 billion, I checked last night, he's worth 96, and it's probably changing because Microsoft tech market is going down right now, Um, $96 billion, Getting $10 million, you know what percentage that is? I did them, I had to check it multiple times because it looked wrong. 0.01%, 0, 100th of 1% of your father's estate. That's all you're getting. You're three kids, you're like, I want 33%, right? Or at least give mom half and let us split, you know, three, you know, one third of $50 million and we will be good. But instead, his three children are only getting 0.01%. The rest he's giving away to charity. Bill Gates said he uh, wanted to give his kids enough money to do something with their lives, but not so much that they don't have to do anything, right? Great quote, right? I want to give my children enough so they can do something with their lives, but not so much that they don't have to do anything. A little common grace, wisdom for us all. Now, why am I bringing him up? Uh, I, also, I also kind of stalked him a little bit uh, on the internet. His, I just want to know how old are his children, you know? And his children are actually in their late teens and early 20s, which means that they don't have their money yet. He didn't give an 18-year-old $10 million and say, here's your inheritance, right? Um, 
In fact, uh, he has stipulations, and I don't know what they are. They're all locked up into his trust between him and his lawyer. Uh, But they will get their inheritance at a date and under conditions that Bill Gates has set for them. Well, in the same way, Paul is telling us God the Father has determined the time when God the Son would come to restore our inheritance. God in his divine plan has mapped it out. This is why Jesus' first words in the Gospel of Mark are, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the Gospel. If you've ever read that and you're like wondering, what does Jesus mean by the time being fulfilled? This is what Jesus is talking about. It is God's sovereign appointment in this moment, 2,000 years ago, for Jesus to come, for God to take on flesh and redeem us. 2,000 years ago, Jesus came at the exact time God had appointed. God wasn't reacting to sin and saying, oh my gosh, things have gotten so bad, I now need to send Jesus, my son. This wasn't a divine oopsie baby. There was nothing random or coincidental about it. God sovereignly ordained the conditions of the very first Christmas. Let me show you what what Paul means by the fullness of time. I think that's such a beautiful phrase. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. You see, uh, in Jesus' day, Greek was the common language of the Roman Empire. What does that mean? Why is that valuable? It facilitated the communication, the rapid communication of the gospel. When the majority of the, the Roman Empire is speaking Greek, you can then go from city to city, country to country, all throughout the, the huge global Roman Empire speaking Greek and the good news of Jesus Christ. There was also this thing called the Pax Romana, uh, the Romana, uh, peace throughout the Roman Empire. And what that did was that created roads and safe passages for churches, missionaries. Paul went on multiple missionary journeys all throughout, all throughout the Mediterranean, taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. 500 years ago, uh, previous, 200 years previous, that would not have been possible. Most importantly, sinners were ready to be freed from their bondage. Greeks were growing weary of the empty paganism that they were living under. The Jews were growing weary from being held prisoner under the yoke of the law. If you read through Matthew 1 and 2, you will read the genealogy. And Matthew tells us there were 14 generations between Abraham and David. And then there were 14 generations between King David and the exile, where Israel was taken out of the promised land. And then there were 14 generations from Israel's exile to the birth of Jesus Christ. That kind of symmetry doesn't just happen by chance. Politically, culturally, religiously, theologically, everything was lined up and it's an ideal time for Jesus to come as the Messiah. In addition to the when of Jesus, subpoint two, Paul also tells us the who, the who of Jesus. Verse five tells us that God sent forth his son born of a woman. This means that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Jesus wasn't a created being. He wasn't like a a, a God, a divine avatar who was God, but then just took on the outer shell. No, Jesus was fully man with the emotional life of a man, the mind of a man, the weaknesses, the hungers, right? The vulnerabilities, the temptations that all of us as humans have experienced. Jesus experienced the full orb of human life. Jesus fully God and fully man. He was, as John tells us in his gospel, in the beginning, the word, the word who was with God. 
the word who was God. Brothers and sisters, uh, let me make another valuable theological distinction for us today. It's true that the death and resurrection of Jesus, it's the most significant miracle to ever take place on the face of the earth. For through the death and resurrection of Jesus, all of us are forgiven of our sins. All of us can be reconciled to God. That is the hope and answer for all of humanity. But every theologian who is worth their salt will tell you that the incarnation is the most astounding miracle, okay? The death and resurrection is the most significant miracle, but the incarnation is the most, most astounding miracle because by it, the eternal God, the infinite God, the perfect God, the omnipotent God, the righteous God, he took on flesh and dwelt among us. It's truly incomprehensible. And I think for you and I too often, as we've like grown up in the church and spent so much time in our worship services, we take the incarnation of Jesus for granted. We say, yeah. When I say Jesus, fully God and fully man, you're like, duh, right? It seems simplistic. Would you reflect upon one simple verse? Paul writes in Colossians 1.19, for in him, Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell. We have to then just ponder. We need to put on our, 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 use our imagination and ask God, how could that be? How could you, who are infinite, how could you take on flesh? How could the omnipotent creator of the universe become a baby in a manger? You know what that's like saying? That's like saying all of the water in the world could be contained in this one cup. That's incomprehensible. Or like saying all of the light in the universe could be contained in one bulb. Brothers and sisters, the incarnation is even more astounding, more incomprehensible than any such claim. That Jesus, that in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Finally, not only do we see the timing and nature of Jesus' incarnation, we also see the obedience and mission of Jesus. What does it mean for Jesus not to just be born of a woman, but also be born under the law? This isn't a reference to just the law of Rome, like we're born under the law of America, the U.S., right? Or in Jesus being born under the law of Caesar and Rome. Paul is talking about the law of Moses. Jesus was born under the law of Moses as a Jew. And he was bound to keep the Torah. Jesus was circumcised. Jesus never broke any of the 10 commandments. He kept every law of the Old Testament. He was always making his sacrifices, going, saying his prayers, celebrating all of the festivals down to the jot and tittle. Jesus was born under the law, keeping the righteous requirements of the law. And although Jesus never broke any of the laws, he bore the curse of the law on our behalf. This is what it means to be born under the law, okay? We are not only committed and required to obey the law, but also if we break the law, we must face the penalties. That's the truth for us today, right? You see the speed limit, it says 65, you drive 85, you get pulled over, ticket, right? Ticket, there's a penalty for breaking that law. There's a curse for breaking that law. Jesus lived under that. 
he lived under that. Um, last week, we had our members installation. If you've never seen one, you might have thought, man, all nations, you guys are a cult. Because we made everybody stand before, you know, the church. They raised their right hand. I would ask questions like, you know, do you agree that you're a sinner in desperate need for the grace of Jesus? And you're like, amen. You know, you covenant to like uphold the, the doctrines uh, that, that we affirm as a Christian reformed church. They're like, amen. And then I asked, you know, will you submit to church discipline? Should you fall to sin? They're like, amen. You know, they always get really quiet on that one, but then, you know, they still say amen. And so there was this like question and affirmation with an amen. Question is, where did we get that? Is Pastor Mike just a weirdo who, who makes people do these things? It's actually a picture of biblical covenant making. A picture of biblical covenant making we get from the Old Testament. You see, in the book of Deuteronomy, as Moses is about to send Israel into the promised land, Moses himself, he's not allowed to enter. So he preaches Deuteronomy as a final sermon to his people who have been with him for 40 years in the wilderness. Deuteronomy is his final sermon. In Deuteronomy chapter 27, he has all of Israel rise up and make a covenant before the Lord. Make a covenant before one another as the nation of God. And he begins, not with promises of blessing, not with all these affirmations of all that we believe and how we're going to love one another and serve one another and bless one another, Moses begins with curses. And I just want to read, I just want to read what Moses leads Israel through. Deuteronomy 27 verse 15, it's going to go up. Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of craftsmen and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or his mother. And all the people shall say, amen. We're all, we're all done now. We're like, we're all cursed, right? We've all done that. Cursed be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark. And all the people shall say, amen. Cursed be anyone who misleads a blind man on the road. And all the people shall say, amen. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And all the people shall say amen. And he goes on for many more verses and he just sums it all up in verse 26. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say amen. Do you know what it means to be cursed? It means to be cut off. It means to be damned. It means to bear the wrath, the judgment of God. And they're saying, if we break the law, we deserve to be cursed. And all of Israel saying, amen, God is holy. His righteous requirement is perfection. And if we break it, we deserve to be cursed. What did Jesus come to do? How is Jesus going to restore our sonship? How is he going to redeem his people? And the answer is this, Jesus came to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Church, redemption is such a beautiful gospel word, okay? It's a beautiful gospel word because it reminds us that we were bought at a price. If you want to redeem something, you have to pay for it. Back in the biblical times, if you wanted to free a slave, you couldn't just command it. You had to pay for it, right? The price of a slave was 30 silver coins, the price that Jesus or Judas betrayed Jesus for, right? Very poetic, very sad, right? Jesus was, 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 was given over for the price of a slave. But this is what redemption reminds us, that in 
Christ in the gospel, we become sons and daughters of God, not just because God wills it, not just because he's like, oh, I love you, you're in. He doesn't just give us a, green pa- a free pass and a green light. God sent forth his son to die on the cross, to shed his blood in our place. We were ransomed. We have been redeemed. See, that's so much more powerful simply than saying Jesus rescues us. I know rescue is a great word that we love to to kind of like attribute Jesus to. You see, Jesus doesn't save us and make us sons and daughters by simply fighting Satan and winning, right? He gave his life for us. He shed his blood for us. He took the curse of God upon himself for us. Last point of the message. How can we be assured of our sonship? You're like, Pastor Mike, you're saying some great things. I want to be blessed. I want to inherit the, the kingdom and the promises of God. I want to be able to call God Abba Father. I want to be intimate with him. I want that chief blessing that God offers us. How do I know I have it? How do I know it's real? Because I think a lot of us, we struggle with that. Life can be so difficult. We have these crises of, of faith. There are moments where we're like, I don't know if I truly believe. I don't know if I'm truly saved. I don't love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I am not generous. I'm not serving my neighbor. I'm not loving my neighbor as myself. I'm not obeying the great commandment. How do I know that I'm really a son or a daughter of God? Paul gives us verse six. And he says, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and of a son, an heir through God. What does he mean by this? He's telling us that the Holy Spirit comes to us to confirm the work of Jesus in our lives. That's what Jesus, so what, what does Jesus do? He secures forgiveness of sins through his death on the cross. He ransoms us so that, we can become, he, so that we can become sons and daughters of God. And then the Holy Spirit comes to seal that in our hearts. The Holy Spirit comes to make that a reality, to give us confirmation that we truly are saved. Paul tells us that no one can say Jesus is Lord apart from the Spirit. When you truly believe that Jesus is Lord of Lords, King of Kings, that is not just you uh, mentally assenting to an idea. That is by the work of the Spirit. When you feel and experience the love and the peace of God, that's not just, you know, the lights being dim and the music being all in minor keys. When it's real, that's the Spirit working. When you are convicted of your sins, when you realize that you are not the answer to your life or for your family. You are not the hope of the world, but only Jesus is. That is the spirit leading you to an end of yourself, to genuine faith in Jesus Christ. In those moments in our lives where we experience the nearness of God, the peace of God, that's the Holy Spirit confirming to us that we indeed are sons and daughters of God. Now, I just want to clarify one thing. It's not chronology, okay? This is not a chronological distinction that Paul's making. Paul's not saying you become a son, then you get the spirit. Actually, it's the spirit who comes first, right? But he's, this is all one package of experiencing the salvific work of God. It happens simultaneously, even though there's a logical order, not a chronological order. Anyways, that's just for the, the nerds who are saying that distinction. Now, 
let's talk about adoption. And I'm going to close with this kind of illustration and story. David Platt, um, great pastor. He's serving on the East Coast. He's uh, a pastor with a great passion for missions. He has four children, two of which were adopted. Uh, David and his wife, they are blonde hair, blue-eyed, Southern Christians, right? I mean, poster children for the Southern Baptist Church. So you would think their two natural-born children are blonde-haired, blue-eyed, and then their two adopted children, they, they got them from kind of like Eastern Europe, so they look that kind of like European-Asian mix. They're, they're beautiful children. And um, oftentimes he was writing and he was talking on this passage and the topic of adoption. He, he said oftentimes people would kind of like, without much self-awareness, see his adopted children and ask, so how many kids do you have? Right? So he'll, maybe they'll see the two Asian-looking ones and they'll say, well, we have four. And then the person will ask, well, how many of them are your real ones? And in that moment, Platt's heart breaks a little. His anger kind of boils up a little. And he simply says, they are all my own. They're all my own. There's no distinction between the children born of my blood and flesh, the children that share my DNA versus my adopted one. They are all my own. And if I have anything to give when I die, one-fourth, one-fourth, one-fourth for inheritance. They are all my own brothers and sisters. All of God's children are all all adopted. That's what the the church in Galatia didn't understand. You see, the church in Galatia, they were split. They had Jewish Christians and they had Gentile Christians. And the Jewish Christians were like, yeah, if you want to be a real Christian because Jesus was Jewish, right? If you want to be a real Christian, you need to not only believe in the gospel, you have to obey the law of Moses. You got to get circumcised. You have to obey the dietary laws. You got to keep honoring the Sabbath. And Paul is saying, no, don't take them back into the elementary principles of the world. Don't take them back into the yoke of slavery. All of God's children are adopted children. The true children of Abraham are not by blood, not by ethnicity, The true children of Abraham are children by faith in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, why do I say that? Because I think even among us, we have a tendency to truncate who is in the family of God and who is not. We think, man, that person is a pastor, that person's a deacon, that person's a a community group leader on worship team. They are going to they're, they're, they're just closer to God. They, they're going to get more blessed. Their inheritance is greater. And for me, I'm just like on the fringe. If I get in, I'm going to be barely getting, getting in. And so we just, we just don't think that God has much in store for us. We don't believe that God has that much affection and love and care for us. We don't think that he has a great sovereign plan for our lives to be useful and part of God's kingdom work in this world. We're just lowercase, fringe Christians. And so we see ourselves as like the bastard children who are barely in to the family. And then others, we're like, oh yeah, but that person's really close to God. That person's really blessed. God really loves them. God really cares for them. But for me, he doesn't really do that much. Brothers and sisters, all God's children are adopted children. And all God's children are promised a beautiful, glorious inheritance. You see, after Moses, 
leads Israel through that covenant. He said, cursed is anyone who doesn't honor their father and mother. They say amen, and the fear of God is in their lives. Because I'm sure as they're reading this and hearing this, they're like, I'm breaking that right now, right? I broke that last night. I'm not living up. And they're just like, oh my gosh, the curses are going to be upon me and my family. Moses closes in chapter 28 with the blessings. With the blessings. Deuteronomy chapter 28, 1. This is what Moses says. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today. The Lord, your God, will set you high above the nations of the earth and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. Imagine that, to be overtaken, not by the storms and winds of this world, but to be overtaken by the blessings of God, the goodness of God. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God, blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of, the, of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. We read that and that's beautiful. And at the same time, we read that it's terrifying. Because how many of us have been careful to do all the commandments of God? And we're like, we fall short. We will not be blessed. This life, this promise, this inheritance that Moses is promising his people, we lost it before we even got in. Brothers and sisters, this is the beauty of the gospel. Just as Jesus took our curse, which he did not deserve, Jesus, in his perfect life, in his absolute righteousness, in his substitutionary death and victorious resurrection, he offers you and I a blessing. This mosaic blessing, this covenant blessing that you and I do not deserve. Let me say that in a tighter sense. Jesus takes the curse that he did not deserve so that he can offer us a blessing that we do not deserve. That's the great exchange of the gospel. That is the promise and inheritance that God has in store for you. Why did Jesus become a man? Why did Jesus take on flesh as the second person in the Trinity so that you and I could be adopted as sons and daughters, that we can become heirs of the kingdom of God and live a blessed life, flourishing not in this world, but in his kingdom? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you We thank you for blessing us. Not because we deserve it, because God, you know, and we know that we do not deserve it. We have fallen short every day of our lives. We thank you that you bless us in grace. You bless us and you love us on the account of Jesus Christ, the righteous. So Lord, I pray that just as you have graciously and freely accomplished this work of making us your sons and daughters. I pray, Lord, that we will receive that in faith. Help us on this morning to believe, to believe that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man, to believe that you loved us so much, you sent forth your son and you sent him on a mission to die on that cross in our place. Help us to believe that that promise, that that gift is ours. 
Father, I want you. I'm praying. I'm praying for you, Lord, to fill the hearts of anyone here who's not sure of your love this morning. Would your Holy Spirit move in their hearts and in their minds to give them peace and comfort. Help them to feel as much as they can the warmth of your embrace. Help us to know you and experience intimacy with you, Lord.